up guys welcome to another episode of the EPL lounge your host Josh back again back again also is Sergio Serg welcome thanks for having me again Josh another uh, hectic week of Premier League football and plenty to digest a lot to talk about as always we'll have our winners and losers from match day two give our match day three preview and then we'll round it off with our EPL jersey giveaway as always but look, let's just dive straight into it. So there's so much to get through. A crazy week, crazy weekend rather of fixtures and results in the Premier League. We'll and, jump and jump. some screamers. Let's oh, some screamers early. Even mention some of those goals. Absolutely, we've already got some genuine goal of the season contenders. I think from yeah. this weekend. Let's uh, take a look at the winners from this weekend and your list. Who are your biggest winners from match day two? I don't think you can put this list together without having uh, Norwich City on there and giving a mention to Timo Puki. First of all, uh, are we in agreement there? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Timo Puki's on on mine on his own. Actually, Norwich do deserve a mention. You're right, but uh, for <laughs> me, Puki absolutely deserves all the credit he's getting right now. You know, he's just one of those players that has always been sort of on the cusp of making it at the highest level. And, you know, he's had a couple of chances earlier on in his career and, you know, he's fallen just short. And this is his chance now. He's at the peak of his career. He's at 29 years old. He's come up with this promoted team. He was absolutely uh, pivotal in his um, role in getting them promoted last season. So he's been on the up and up and you know, this is his chance to explode and he's come into the Premier League, the toughest league in the world. He's got himself a hat-trick. You know, we might see a, a whole new team of Pookie this season. Look, I have nothing but praise for the man as well. Like you said, we've seen so often as well, strikers have very successful seasons in the Championship and in leading teams to the Premier League and just not being able to replicate it in the top flight. For whatever reason, I mean, you know, obviously the team style of play has a part to play. Uh, and I think the system at Norwich seems to suit him to an absolute tee. Yep. So there's that benefit as well. But at the end of the day, the player themselves have to adapt, have to show a level of confidence in the Premier League that they belong there. And, and I think that's exactly what he's shown in the opening two games, that he is a Premier League player through and through. That's a very good point, Josh. It's so rare for a player to be able to graduate late in their career. We're talking about players that are in their late 20s and haven't made it at the highest level. The only two that come to mind immediately are Jamie Vardy, who was an unknown quantity yep. before he came into the Premier League. And the other one is Kevin Phillips, who I think was 27 before anyone knew who he was. And he went on to you know, score 30 goals in a season. And, yep. you know, just a story that you love to see. Um, and I, I hope we, we get to see that from Pookie this season. Yeah, exactly right. I, and you know what? Again, just given the way Norwich play and, you know, the opening two weeks have shown that they're not necessarily going to stray from it at all, for better yep. or worse. And that's just going to mean opportunities keep coming for him. And like, you know, I mean... Anyone that's played sport and, and watched it for long enough knows once your confidence is as high as his is no doubt right now, yep. he'll keep putting them away as they come. So Yeah, and it wasn't a purchase hat trick either. Some of those goals, you know, they required um yep. quite a bit of work. So all the credit to him. 
Now, my next winner, Josh, is a really, uh, really strange one, a bit of a controversial one. I, I think you'll appreciate it. <laughs> Let's get to it. So I'm going to give a shout out, not to a, not to a player, not to a team, but to a concept. The, I, I don't know what to call it, but I've called it the <laughs> mistake reversal phenomenon. What I find watching the Premier League is that too often, uh, more often than it should happen, a player that has made a dreadful mistake goes on to rectify that mistake by scoring a goal. Now, we've been watching Premier League for many years and we see it over and over again. And I think this is the perfect round to bring it up because we saw it twice. Yep. We saw it with Ndidi and we saw it with Douglas Louise at Aston Villa who, who rectified his mistake with an absolute screamer. Yep. What do you have to make of that, Josh? Why, why do we see it so often? I wish I could tell you why. It's, it's such a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, you know that when a player makes a mistake, they're going to want to atone for it as quickly as possible. But I think it's also a real testament to the mental resolve of the player to be able to yep. do so. Uh, you know, there, there are some players who just go the other way with it as well. I mean, Absolutely. we had Loris Karius in goal and, you know, <laughs> we saw it firsthand where mistakes can absolutely shatter a player's confidence and completely derail them and their career path as a result. And, you know, like you said, we've had two examples in this one weekend where the complete opposite has happened and it's not exactly a, a one-off thing, you know we see it so regularly and it's such uh such a fascinating mindset for for does does making a mistake alleviate the pressure in some way in the minds of some people like they've hit rock bottom so the pressure's gone it can't get any worse from here um yeah. <laughs> and then they, they play with just that little bit that you know that air of confidence i don't know i'm just i don't think that's it but i'm just trying to, i'm just uh, yeah i mean like, i try to think like when if i play like when i make a mistake on the pitch you do want to atone for it straight away. And I think it's almost like... A, I think you're kind of right in that it's it's almost a, a release and you play with that little bit more freedom because you, you do think, well, fuck it, I've already made as big a mistake as I have. I mean, I may as well take a gamble that little bit more yeah. and take that extra risk to try and alleviate, you know... Whatever it is that I've done, or you know, make it better. And I think, particularly, you know, with Douglas Louise's goal, how many times is he really going to try that shot? Exactly. Yeah. You know, it, it, the back's against the wall. They needed a goal. He's decided to literally just hit it. And you know, if there's anything wrong with his confidence, he doesn't even attempt that shot, does he? No, no, absolutely not. And indeed, he's one. I mean, he's. He's, the guy should not be winning a header full stop in the box. Uh, he had no right to, to get to that ball first. And yeah, just... I don't know if it's if it's extra hunger or extra motivation to to do so, but it is an interesting phenomenon. Like I, I can't really explain it, to be perfectly honest. But Maybe next week we'll bring on a guest sports psychologist yeah, to help <laughs> us work, work through this problem. If there is any <laughs> psychologist listening, I'd love to uh, get an insight into exactly how it works. But fantastic to see and, and great to see both those men stand up tall. And obviously for Leicester, it resulted in a point gained. Yep. For Villa, not so much. But nonetheless, I think both those men going into next week will now feel a lot freer than had they not come up with those uh, 
uh, goals on the back of their errors. I mean, you could argue that uh, Aston Villa have a positive to take from that game now, which they might not have had um, if not for Douglas Louise's oh, goals. Oh, yeah. So. If they lose that 2-0, they go in to their game with Everton in a very different headspace than what they will right now, yeah. Yeah, they need to clutch it at everything they can at the minute. <laughs> they do, they do. Uh, look, my winners column, I also had uh, Timo Puki, so we won't double down there as much as I could talk about him for the next half an hour. <laughs> but I've also got an interesting one, and hear me out here because it's not just bias, but I've actually got Liverpool. Okay, okay. In my winners column. And here's why. Look, they came off a very tough 120-minute game in Istanbul against Chelsea midweek. They had a very short turnaround. They then have to go away in the Premier League, which is hard enough as it is, to a Southampton side who, in my opinion, are far better than the results have shown. And we'll go into that a little bit later. Yep. And I think it's going to be a very tough place for a lot of sides to visit. Uh, Ralph Hasenhutl's done a terrific job with that side. They took points off some big sides there last year once he took over against the likes of Arsenal, against the likes of Tottenham. I won't be surprised to see them do so again this season. And for Liverpool to come away with a win where they weren't at their best, uh, they obviously circumstantially were in a very tough position, mm-hmm. but once again found a way to win and do so in a manner that championship teams do. I think really proves a point. You know, we we both spoke about the expected regression this season, both from City and Liverpool, yep. on the basis that, you know, you can't possibly maintain that level of play for another full season. But I think a lot of people, a lot of pundits, a lot of fans alike, were expecting Liverpool to regress far more than City. Understandably so, given the ridiculous squad that City have, the style of football that they play... But this win really, I think, cemented Liverpool as genuine title contenders again. As silly as that sounds, but I think a lot of people were putting City kind of in a tier of their own and Liverpool to kind of be the sole contender but still be some ways off of them. Whereas I think, you know, a win like this really outlines this team's credentials and really ingrains in people's memories that mentally this side's not going anywhere. They will absolutely fight tooth and nail until the end. And irrespective of circumstances, they will find a way to win, even if things aren't necessarily going to plan. Look, you know, as you said, we've, we've spoken about City and Liverpool regressing uh, this season, not necessarily because the team is worse, but it, it almost seems like the, the natural uh, progression from such a historic season and sort of coming back down to earth. And when I think about you know, where City and Liverpool in particular are going to be dropping points this season in areas where they maybe gained them last season, it is games like this. It is those um, really difficult, let's call them bread and butter games where you're not playing well and, you know, it's a tight game and the opposition is creating more and they're taking advantage of your your fatigue and, and all these sort of things. And what we saw from both City and Liverpool last season was they were able to eke out the results in, in these situations. You know, you, I remember Liverpool in particular, that uh, first game against Everton, you know, these, yep. these stoppage time winners. And yep. 
there's a little bit of luck that goes your way. And in addition to that, you, you're able to weather the storm and you're able to um, engineer the luck in, in your own favor. And that's the element that I think you expect to, to lose from a team like Liverpool and City. And from the evidence that we saw from Liverpool this weekend, you know, they were able to grind it out. So I understand that. Yeah, and look, like I said, I think Southampton are going to be a, a better team than people probably anticipate this season, especially based on the results of the first two weeks. So, yeah, a huge statement win, as odd as that may sound, coming against Southampton. But for me, yeah, definitely worthy of being in that winner's category, given that they're now sitting atop the table on six points. A little bit of bias there, but not that much. A, a little <laughs> bit. There's always going to be a teeny bit of bias, but some reasoning behind it as well this week. <laughs> Uh, let's take a look at the lo- the biggest losers from match day two. And always interesting discussions, these ones. What have you got for your losers column? Yeah, so first of all, I've got to go Adrian. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fair. <laughs> absolute howler. Uh, terrible goalkeeping error. Absolutely yep. unforgivable. And, uh, you know, I love Klopp's comment as well. Uh, you know, he's, he can call himself a Liverpool keeper now because he's made a tremendous error. You know, I think that's the sort of uh, comment that takes the sting out of it for Adrian. Yeah. You know, he's able to have a bit of a laugh with it. And I really, th- I actually think that's really, really clever from Klopp. Um, part of the reason he's such a fantastic manager. But, you know, we don't see too many blunders these days. Not as many as we used to anyway. That, that's the feeling I've got. I don't know the stats <laughs> on that. But that one really struck me. It was... It was pretty bad. Oh, it was bad. I, it was it was all sorts of bad. It had me using all sorts of language at the television. Put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, and and that that does deserve to be in the losers column. I think for more than just the direct impact it had, obviously giving Southampton a way back into the game, which they almost went on with and stole a point in the end. The confidence came back tenfold after that goal. But it also, uh, I think it also creates a seed of doubt in that Liverpool backline now going forward until Allison comes back that they don't have the sturdiest of goalkeepers there. And their style of play is that they're more than comfortable playing to the goalkeeper and playing their way back out and retaining possession that way. And, you know, little things like this, they... Like I said, they leave that little seed of doubt in your back of your head as a player. And if you have that moment's hesitation before you go to play it that way, you can play yourself into more trouble as a result, be it, you know, underplaying a back pass, playing it elsewhere that gets turned over in a dangerous position. And yeah, I think the the knock-on effect it could have in the next coming, or this particular uh, coming weekend against Arsenal, but in the coming weeks until Alisson are back, will certainly make for interesting viewing. You know, I think it's going to be a test of Klopp's man management skills. You know, he was never able to reverse that process uh, with Carriers. You know, yeah. he just kept um, uh, falling deeper and deeper into the, the hole in his mind that was preventing him from, you know, just playing his regular game. We yeah. know Adrian's a good keeper. Um, uh, I think to his advantage as well is his experience and being a veteran among in, in the yeah. locker room, I think will probably help him out more so than it did Carrius, who's, you know, still starting his career really as a goalkeeper yeah. and trying to establish a name for himself. 
Adrian, obviously, the complete flip side of that, and he's at the tail end of his career. And I think, yeah, that that might, uh, I don't want to say play to his advantage, but, you know, give him a bit of an out. For what it's worth, I expect him to recover. Yeah. We'll see how that plays out. Um, so next on my losers list, I've got Newcastle. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no surprises there. None at all. They, they need to live on this losers list until <laughs> they get rid of Steve Bruce, yeah? Look, you're playing against the promoted side and you're, you know, aside from being 3-0 down, um, you know, you look at pass completion, you look at possession, you look at these metrics and they were just being outplayed. In every, um, yeah, every facet. All, all over the pitch. So that's uh, really embarrassing. It's uh, it's absolutely horrendous. I mean... Having said that, I mean, we did tip Newcastle for relegation, but it's not like they were one of the, the hot favourites. So I get the feeling that while we expected them to be pretty yeah. bad, not everyone did. That That's true. And also to an extent, I don't, I don't even know if we expected them to be this bad. No, I didn't expect them to be this You bad. know, we spoke last week that that loss to Arsenal... A 1-0 loss to Arsenal doesn't look bad on paper. Yeah. But when you look at the Arsenal lineup, and then you look at how little you created as a team at home on opening day against a side whose defensive frailties are front and foremost for that club, that's a concern. And then you follow it up away at a newly promoted side who absolutely plays you off the park and you again create next to nothing. I mean, they had a 0.61 expected expected goal return against Norwich after recording a 0.3 against Arsenal. Doesn't bode well. Doesn't bode um, well, and I especially when you take into consideration they've got uh, Tottenham away next week. Exactly right. Yeah, so things are just going to get worse, and I think yeah, like you said, we didn't expect much from them. Uh, they weren't necessarily one of the favourites. They, you know, there was five or six teams who were more heavily fancy to go down. I think that that had changed right now, and you know, one of our listeners who pointed out Newcastle. Bottom on Christmas Day at eleven dollars. That's uh, certainly looking pretty good right about now. Better than it did at the start of the season. Yeah, definitely better. Uh, look, yeah, I- I'm not even going to attempt to defend Newcastle in the slightest. They absolutely deserve to be on that losers list, and probably the only reason I don't have them is much like the reason you didn't have West Ham last <laughs> week. Is I don't expect anything from them. I literally feel like putting them in the losers column is suggesting that they're disappointing when they're not they're delivering everything i expected of them or under delivering fair call fair call now my last loser josh i don't know you might want me to hold out on it until we hear yours because i have a feeling it's going to segue into a, a big conversation this could be interesting what is it it's VAR. Oh, yeah, no. VAR on. is on the loser column. No, it doesn't need to be on the loser column. It does not <laughs> need to be there at all. I will, we will definitely talk this one out in a second. My quick losers for the week. An interesting one, probably Aston Villa. Yeah. Uh, maybe a little bit harsh, but at the same time, they're now the only newly promoted side without a point after spending upwards of £100 million. We said it could go either way. Uh Look, I don't want to say that they're in a hole or anything like that, but you know, the longer you go without a point in the Premier League, the harder it gets, especially for a newly promoted side. And it's clear that they haven't quite gelled yet as a unit. Yep. Uh, they, you know, a different lineup again this week. 
Are we going to see another different lineup next week at Everton? Things like that just make it all the more complicated for the players and for the manager. They need to really pull things together as soon as possible and knuckle down with whatever it is that their style of play is going to be, whatever their starting lineup is going to be. They need to really create that identity ASAP and get something on the board because if they again come out on the losing end next week at home, all of a sudden you're looking at a real relegation dogfight, even if it is just week three. I think you hit the nail on the head, Josh. This is a team that is forging their identity. So if they continue to lose, they're going to start playing like losers. You know, they might have approached this season fearless, uh, thinking that they can accomplish everything. But it, like we, we said it last week, and it's even truer now that they've got two losses on the board. It is so crucial for them to start picking up points. Otherwise, they're going to be, um, you know, their confidence is going to be so low. And they're not going to believe that they can come together and gel and play as a unit. That's absolutely crucial. You know, it's, it's a cliche, but success breeds confidence. They need to get. They need a result to go their way. They yeah. don't necessarily need to start playing like champions, but they need to, to to find a way to grind out a result. And at home to Everton, look, it's not an easy fixture, but this is the Premier League. You don't get easy fixtures. This yeah. is a game that they really have to be looking to win. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree with that. So hopefully, we get some sort of response from Villa. I wouldn't want to see them zero and three to start the season. It would just be so demoralizing for that club as a whole. And, you know, like we spoke about in preseason, the last thing you want is to create a toxic environment around the entire club. And the moment the fans start doubting the players, that that very much will be felt on the pitch by, by those players themselves. So... And it's going to be it's going to come sooner because of the money that they've spent. Yeah. Expectations are naturally higher, so fans will have less patience with the players and the performance, and they will turn on them eventually. Yeah, my second loser for the week is Crystal Palace. I was very close to putting Sheffield in the winners column. I do think they definitely deserve a mention, at the very least. But yeah. uh, instead, I've put Palace in the losers just because they were. Again, just so unimaginative going forward. They created very little. They look a side that's reflective of last year's Brighton side Mm -hmm. that just had nothing going forward and almost relied on an element of luck week in, week out to break the deadlock or to get them that crucial goal, be it from the penalty spot or from a set piece. Roy Hodgson's really got his work cut out for him, I think, because... To go to Sheffield to record a 0.2 expected goal return after recording a 0.4 the week before at home. You know, I mentioned last week that I really, really didn't like that front line uh, minus Zaha who came back in this week, but even he struggled to have an impact at all. So I don't know what to expect from Crystal Palace going forward, but... I do know that they need to make huge improvements in the coming weeks if they're to avoid becoming one of those sides that is, you know, at the bottom of the table looking up in the early goings. Yeah, like for me, I think it's still too early to to call Crystal Palace getting dragged down into that relegation fight. Again, I'm, I'm going to uh, rest my faith in 
Roy Hodgson to to be able to navigate them away from that situation. Um, but, you know, Sheffield United, this is uh, almost a picture-perfect start to the season for them. They couldn't oh. have asked for much more. They've got a draw away from home in round one against Bournemouth. And yeah. now they've picked up uh, three points in their first game on home soil. And, and the atmosphere was electric. electric yeah. Uh, the reception those players got at the final whistle having secured those three points. I mean, that's... Rightly so. They're hot favourites to be bottom of the table. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, the the reception that the players got will give them such a boost in these next few weeks as well that, you know, that confidence will just keep picking up points on its own, really, almost irrespective of their style of play or anything like that. If they keep going about their work that way they have been, you know they may be more than fine in a few months time you know if your goal is avoiding relegation you can just really uh focus on on the home fixtures playing in front of the home fans and in putting in your best performances there and even if you get drubbed away you know you're still on target exactly Uh, you know those three pointers they're absolutely crucial every single one of them over the course of the season yeah they're my two losers all right let's do it serge why is VAR in your losers column? It's an embarrassment, Josh. This it, it, it's a major step backwards. So it's the exact same point that I made last week when I was looking at that Wolves yep. situation. Like to put it simply, in a logical universe, you cannot disallow that goal. There is a reason that there is an intentional handball rule and an unintentional handball up until now has never been considered a a handball. So we once had uh, one rule for handball. This is more so about VAR, but I think VAR is responsible for warping this rule. So I'm going to start with the rule and I'm going to work my way back up and explain how VAR is responsible for this and how it's absolutely absurd. So, we used to have one rule for handball. Yes, interpretation varies from referee to referee, but we understand hands are in natural position, was it intentional, so on and so forth. It doesn't matter where you are on the pitch, it's the same rule. It doesn't matter whether you're the attacking team or the defending team, it's the same rule. Now, all of a sudden, we've got video technology, so what do they do? They change the rule. If there's a goal, it doesn't matter whether the contact was intentional or unintentional, but if it comes off a defender's arm in exactly the same situation, it's not a handball because there's not a possibility of a goal. So the way I look at it, you've got three rules now. You've got your regular handball rule. You've got handball in the box for the attacking team. And then you've got handball in the box for the defending team. So I just think that that particular rule has been fractured for no good reason. And, you know, like I said, it comes down... For, for me, the simplest test is just just the eyeball test. Just watch that. It doesn't matter if you're a fan of football or you're not. Ask them to watch that goal. Ask them to watch the Wolves goal the previous week and say, do you think that should have been disallowed? And there can't be a logical mind in the world that thinks that that goal should be disallowed. Look... I'll start by saying this. Should the Wolves goal have been a goal? Yes. 
Should the City goal have been a goal? Yes. However, VAR is here to create a consistent outcome in these situations. Now, for starters, if if that City goal was allowed, the ruckus that would have caused, having disallowed the one the week before, would have been enormous. And it would have absolutely put question marks around the entire point of VAR and how it's being operated and whether it's actually beneficial in any way. They absolutely had to rule that out purely on the basis that they ruled the one out the week before. And like I said last week, if that's how they're going to rule it going forward, then so be it. We have a consistent platform now that says this is not a goal. And the ruling states now that any handball, be it intentional or unintentional, that is involved directly in the lead up to a goal will be called back. And that's what happened in both these occasions. Both those handballs, albeit unintentional, directly led or were in the direct play that led to the goal. And, you know, I obviously Guardiola is going to come out and have his say, but it was only a couple of months ago that. You know, he was questioning Lorente's goal in the Champions League, which was unintentional. I think, I, I don't know if that was, un, like, we, we've had this debate. I'm not convinced that was unintentional. The ball came from the corner, um, and he had clear sight of the ball. Yes, there was players in front of him, but there was no deflection. Uh, so I think, I, I don't know if you can make that argue, argument consummately that... But then this is the perfect example then, right? You see it as being potentially deliberate. And I'm saying that I don't see it that way at all and I saw it as being unintentional, in which case we now have a difference of opinion and whoever's ruling it on the day may see it one way versus another way on another day. You're always going to have a difference of opinion. I mean, take take fouls in the box, for example. So in the first half, there was that incident where Rodri was wrestled yep. to the ground and Guardiola brought that up. He said that whoever was in the VAR box must have been drinking coffee at the time. Yep. But if you really wanted to make fouls in the box consistent, you could say any contact in the box is a penalty. Doesn't matter if it's shoulder to shoulder. Doesn't matter if they're grappling on a corner. Penalty. You'd have consistency, but you'd also have the most crap sport on the face of the earth. Yeah, that, that one's a hard one because, yeah, I don't think there's any way you could pretend, you could possibly put a consistent ruling in place for something like that. But when it comes to handball, I mean... But for all the same reasons, handball, you don't want to put that rule in the box in particular because there is so much chaos in the box. There is so much chaos on set pieces corners you've got all these bodies in the box you've got push pushing shoving you know it, there are so many situations where the ball is hitting arms or shoulders or you know whatever um illegal part of the body and you know i i, I have a feeling that this rule is going to be changed uh come next season i i, I just don't like it if they change it next season I think we revisit the debate only because my support of both those rulings is that it's created a consistent outcome both weeks. And that was the entire point of VAR was to create consistency. But the rule itself has lost all consistency. 
well, it's a different rule depending on where you are on the field. It's a different rule depending on whether you're the attacking, attacking team or the defending that's team. That's right. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. I'm not debating that there's now like a you know a one A ruling of handball now as opposed to it just being the one rule. But if that's how they want to go about it, and that's how they feel is best to create a consistent outcome in these situations, then so be it. And I think we had to, we just have to live with those results. And over the course of the season, I still believe these things will even out. I still believe that Tottenham are going to be on the receiving end of something like that some point this season. And City are going to have it work their way, be it you know a, a goal disallowed that would have taken points off them down the track. So... I understand the hysteria around it right now and people saying that it should have been a goal because I'm not saying it shouldn't. As a player, I on the pitch, I would I would be fuming if that would were to get called up. And if that happened to my team, I'd be livid. I just, you know, I... Well, I'm going to make the same argument I made last week. If there's no VAR... That's a goal 99.9% of the time. Exactly like a right. A referee will never call that as a handball in real time it, because it's obvious that the ball has not been played in such a way to benefit the player that would eventually score. Uh, exactly right. And the only thing I can say in response is that this is purely to eliminate that 0.1%. So this is... I'm going to go back to the overarching reason why I think VAR is responsible for this idiocy. <laughs> And that is that, you know, I spoke a lot last week about the necessity for referees to be able to interpret the game. So there are some situations where it doesn't matter how well you know the rules, unless you understand the game and you understand the physicality and you understand the nuances, you're not going to be able to make good calls. However, we need referees that understand the game and that can interpret the rules in such a way what VA, what they think VAR is going to do is that, oh, we no longer need the referees to have to interpret the rules. We're just going to make the rules so black and white yes. and so consistent that we're going to take away the ability for the referees to interpret the game. And this idea is completely asinine, in my opinion. It's not going to work. And if they think it works, they're just going to take it further and further and further. And we might see an example where they say, look, no physical contact in the box. As soon as there's um, a hand on the shoulder or it's shoulder to shoulder or the attacking player is impeded, it's a penalty. So that's down the line. Like that's, I don't think that's the, the next progression, but I think that we could see VAR encroaching on the ability essentially of the referee to, to interpret the game and to um, basically look at a situation that's subjective and be like, okay, this is this is the ruling. Yeah, I, if it heads down that path, then all of a sudden we're in a very slippery slope. That's my fear. And you know, we will be looking at a game in a few years' time that you can't even call football. And you know, if it takes, if it does go down that path, then I will be the first to put my hand up and say that. We should have stopped it when we had the chance. As of right now, and how it's used as of today, this season, 
I think they got it spot on. I think they got both decisions spot on based on how they plan on making these decisions going forward. I don't like them necessarily, but they're the right decisions. All I'm going to say in, in summary is that, you know, this is obviously an experiment of sorts and in part it was inspired by what happened with the Lorente yep. goal, which by the way, I think was a goal. So I, I'm not arguing that, that that was the wrong decision. I'm just arguing that it's not cut and dry that it was an accidental handball. I think yep. you can make the argument that it was, but that, that that's another story. Uh, I, basically, all I'm trying to say is that this is an experiment and I really hope that the brass of people that matter that are making these decisions are looking at it now and thinking to themselves, well, this experiment is failing. This is not helping the game. This is not what we need VAR for. I want it for the... Um, you know, as I said, the the black and white decisions, this for me is still a, a grey area. Like, you know, I've watched that incident a couple of times and I, I don't know if it just came off Laporte's arm or if it came off the, uh, if it bounced off his arm and then came off the uh, the Spurs defender's arm and, and ricocheted there. It's not even clear what actually happened. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's madness and I, I think we're heading down the wrong path, but I hope that someone uh, down the line has the balls to say, we made a mistake. We're going to take this back a little bit, but we'll see. We will see. Uh, with that, <laughs> anyone that has an opinion on the decisions or on how VAR is being used, definitely leave us a comment. And I'd, some... I'd absolutely love to hear viewer opinions on this. Yeah. So if you have any any opinion on VAR, please write in um, and I, I'd be happy to address them next week as well. Absolutely, yeah. The, the, all the comments that get left regarding VAR and just in general, we'll definitely look at it next week and I'm sure there'll be another point of discussion as well <laughs> after the next round of fixtures. But with that, let's take a look at those fixtures and have a look at match day three. Preview some of the fixtures there. We've got an early a Friday night game, so a Saturday morning game for us to kick off the round. It will be Aston Villa at home to Everton. So as we've spoken about how big this is for Villa, uh, which is outrageous that you know a, a week three fixture can carry such magnitude, but I genuinely feel like it does. Everton... Two clean sheets in a row, looking tidy and organised. Weren't necessarily fantastic in either fixture, in my opinion. But they'd be happy with four points after the two games, I think. Yeah. I don't actually know what it is that they would expect in this fixture. I, you know, if they genuinely want to crack that top six, then they have to be winning this game. And I think one thing's for sure is that we will see... We'll at least get a better understanding, I think, of Marco Silva's intentions this season from this fixture. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, there might be a, a part of, you know, the management in Aston Villa that say to themselves, look, I'm not saying this is the right approach, but they might be thinking, look, we, we need to stem the bleeding. We just need to make sure we don't lose at home in this fixture. So, you know, part of me... Um, Curious as to whether Aston Villa are going to set out for a point or whether they are going to go for the throat and try and get the three points. I think Everton definitely, they're going to play to win. Yeah. And they're going to believe that they can pick up three points here. Obviously, as you said, promoted team, no points. Um, their, their confidence is, has to have been knocked around a little bit. But, you know, I think it's going to be a really interesting game just to see um, 
again, it, we, as we learn a little bit more about Aston Villa and what this squad is actually capable of and whether they are going to stabilise or they're going to continue to sink lower and lower. So I am looking forward to watching this one. Yeah. In regards to what you were just saying about whether they set up for a point, I don't know if the squad's capable of that. I mean, look, that game against Tottenham, they held on for so long. But, you know, Tottenham were... To say they were knocking on the door would be an understatement. I mean, it was inevitable that they were going to break through at some point. That game, Tottenham recorded a 2.58 expected goal. Yep. At home to Bournemouth, Bournemouth were able to create a 1.65 expected goal at Villa Park. Those are very high figures uh, at any point in the season. It's definitely a concern early in the early goings. And like I said, they're now playing an Everton side who give up very little defensively. They're, they're set up and structurally set up very well, I think. So chances are going to be few and far between going forward. And Everton's attacking talent, albeit maybe not quite off the blocks just yet, but the talent that they have there and the capabilities of those players, they'll be able to take advantage of, of a backline that's very shaky and frail at the moment. And, you know, the likes of Sigurdsson and Richarlison could be absolutely running riot in this one. And that's that's got to be a concern for Villa. Absolutely. Look, you know, we were so concerned about uh, Norwich sort of coming up and not being able to defend in this division. But, you know, Aston Villa have had a lot of holes and Everton, absolutely, they've got the, the quality uh, up front there to, to punish teams and to bamboozle backlines. So, again, you know, I think these are really difficult questions for, um, for Aston Villa. How, how are they going to approach this game? You know, do they see a, a point as a success given that they've lost the first two games? Do they just want to stabilise now? I, I, I said it, I'm going to reiterate it. I think that they need to play for a victory. Um, you know, we sort of discussed them coming into this season as being the, um, the, the joker in the pack. We don't really know what we're going to get from them. And as in the same way, you know, they don't know what their identity or their image is. And you know, they need to discover that. Yeah. So. They do. Tough on to pick, I think, this one, this particular fixture, given the circumstances around it and the style of play from both sides. Based on what we've seen, I'd probably have to lean Everton. Yep. Again, just because I think defensively, they'll be able to contain Villa, whereas Villa's backline right now have not shown themselves to be Premier League quality. And Everton have enough in attack to expose that. Uh, so slightly leaning Everton, but you know what? I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna go with a draw just because I think Villa find a way to get something out of this fixture. I'm I'm happy to to back draw on this one. Actually, that's my gut instinct. Let's go with the gut instinct. <laughs> the early kickoff on the Saturday night for us. The early. Saturday fixture in the UK Norwich Chelsea this will be a fun game <laughs> two sides who are terrific going forward uh, and as a result leave themselves a little bit susceptible at the back I think it's fair to say yeah big time this is going to be an entertaining game I expect to see goals galore 
I think it's going to be a spectacle for the fans. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Chelsea are going to be desperate to to oh, yeah. get their first win of the season. They need and a win. They have to believe that they can do it away at Norwich, despite you know their um, miraculous performance in the previous round. Yeah, uh, Lampard is going to be desperate to get off the mark and. Norwich City, they're, they're flying high on confidence. They've got another uh, home game. So let's see what uh, the Canaries and Puki are capable of to yeah. see if they can back it up. They've won their last three halves of football now. Three of the four halves they've played this season, they've won. So I think it's fair to say confidence will certainly be high at Carrow Road. That being said, I still think Chelsea are, are going to walk away with the points here. And I do think they'll spoil the party a little bit. You know, that, that win is... It's there, like it's it's right around the corner for this squad. They've been very good in in every fixture so far. With a little bit of luck, you know they they changed the results of all of those. They could easily have come away with at least a point at Old Trafford. They could easily have lifted the Super Cup last midweek. They could easily have secured all three points by half time against Leicester. So. Like I said, that that result's coming, and and they're probably going to get it. I think against a side who, as adventurous and as fun as they're going to be, like I said, just the the frailties that they have at the back and the situations that they put themselves in by playing that style of football, it'll tell in in fixtures like this. And they did only beat Newcastle just just to put in the boot that's, for that, the shorties. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, we we probably shouldn't get too carried away with that result. <laughs> Uh, given that most sides will be enjoying similar success there. But for me in this one, I definitely expect goals as well. I think both sides get on the score sheet. I just think Chelsea do come away with their first win of the season. I agree. A host of midnight games again for us. Brighton, Southampton, United, Crystal Palace, Sheffield, Leicester, Watford, West Ham. Which of those is your pick of the bunch? I'm really intrigued to see Sheffield versus Leicester, to be honest with you. I just want to see what, you know, Sheffield United uh, at home again. Yep. Can they back it up? And Leicester is a team, um, you know, a very capable upper mid-table team. They're going to challenge Sheffield United. They're going to uh, challenge them. And, you know, again, we we spoke about that electric home base and we, we spoke about the ability maybe for Sheffield United to think of their home ground as a fortress and just play for the fans. And look, uh, I'm just really curious to see if they can continue. Yeah, Bramall Lane will be absolutely electric again. Leicester, look, two draws to start the season, not bad results given the fixture list that they've had. But again, another example of a side who, if they genuinely want to push that top six this season... This has to be a fixture that they've circled and expected to win. Yeah. And I think that'll that'll be what makes this such a fascinating contest. Uh, Chelsea really, I think, were comfortably the better side for that first 45 minutes. However, as soon as Leicester found that equaliser, they absolutely could have and should have gone on with that game. They missed a couple of absolutely... Guilt had chances. James Madison in particular firing yes. one over. Oh, God. Uh, Vardy, yeah. I don't want to say, was a clear-cut chance. A half chance probably at best yeah. on his left foot. But, you know, they they really stepped it up and, and found a, a level of belief, I think, in themselves after that equaliser. 
having been held scoreless uh, against Wolves and in that first 45 by Chelsea, if they can go on and, and build from that performance, I think they go to Bramall Lane, they silence the crowd early and they come away with the three points. But, you know, if... I don't want to say if they get drawn to Sheffield standards, as cliche as that is, but, you know, if they turn up and, and play Sheffield's game, then, A, it's not something that I think that they're capable of or necessarily accustomed to. And, B, I think it'll only play into the home side's hands to the point where they'll be the ones looking to come away with three points by the end of the 90 minutes. Yeah, again, it, it, you know, there are so many uh, questions here. We know that Leicester have to play for the three points. You know, are Sheffield United going to be content with a, with a draw? You know, I think this is going to tell us a lot about their ambition and, you know, when they are going to go for games and when they are going to sit back and just try to, to, to soak up those uh, those one-pointers over the course of the season. So, I, fascinating I, to see how they're set up. Yeah, it, definitely. And I think uh, if you had to pick something here... I probably would lean Leicester. I'd actually lean the under two and a half goals here, as odd as that sounds, I think, for Leicester fixtures, even though both have gone unders. Uh, I just feel that Sheffield will turn this into an absolute grind, mm-hmm. and it'll be ugly for the first half an hour. And as a result, I think Leicester are just going to find it really hard to get going after that. Could Game could certainly go in that direction. Um you know, the thing that changes that, I think, is if Leicester can get an early goal, oh, then that open changes, up yeah. the game, I, I think that will change the complexion, but it, it could definitely go in that uh, into that really cagey um, direction. And I, I, I think definitely, at least for the first 30 minutes, 40 minutes, Sheffield United will, will play safe and will try to, um, to stifle and frustrate Leicester. Yeah. The fixture that I've highlighted mainly because it's our pun school best bet is actually Brighton and Southampton. Uh, yep. Look, it's not going to be the most entertaining fixture. It's probably, I'd even be willing to say the least viewed fixture of those midnight games. But I really expect Southampton to bounce back here. Now, like I said, this is this will be our pun school best bet. We've already locked it in online for the members. It's Southampton draw no bet. $2.15, which for me is fantastic value. As good as Brighton have been, I think, to start the year, this is probably going to be their toughest test, as, as odd as that sounds. You're looking at a side who are going to be very desperate, and they know that they should have points under their belt already, and they don't. They actually recorded a better expected goal return than both Burnley and Liverpool in those two fixtures. And, you know, if you watch both those games back, you you won't be surprised by that. It's just silly, silly defensive errors that are costing them at the moment. And I just think a, a team like Brighton probably won't capitalise on those should they happen again in the same way that a side like Liverpool did. I mean, you had Mane's individual brilliance breaking the deadlock on half-time and then, again, just a cheap error at the back that saw them turn it over, Mane able to poke it to Firmino, who's gone on a little run around the box and finish. At the end of the day, it was just individual brilliance that was their undoing. 
mm-hmm. in that fixture against Liverpool. And I think that a game against Brighton is one that they absolutely will go into expecting to win. And if they play the way that they have, they'll certainly come away with a point at the very least, which is why I think the draw no bet is fantastic value because if we get the push on the draw, that's fine. To get plus money on Southampton, who are going to a stadium where they've won their last two visits. They won 1-0 here in the Premier League last year. They won 1-0 in the League Cup here last year. Probably expect a similar scoreline again, to be honest. One goal could be enough here, but for me, this is where Southampton get off the mark this season. Yeah, look, Josh, it's a really interesting bet. I mean, we've discussed the expected goals in great detail, and you know it's quite a... Uh, quite a reliable metric when you break it down and you, you you start to to use that as your indicator for the quality of the team and the results are um, pr- pretty incredible like so I, w- I would say even surprising um, how accurate your, your bets become once you start to factor in expected goals and super interesting when you look at the fact that Southampton actually defeated Liverpool on expected yeah. goals and even their first game so having said that, it's going to be really interesting to see, um, you know, this will be give us a good indication of how reliable um, XG is as, as a yep. metric. But in addition to that, you know, Brighton, they've got the same amount of points as Manchester City so far this season, and they're playing at home, so... And, and look, they, they were fantastic against West Ham, and they created a 2.18 expected goals. Returning go. that game, which is very high for any side, let alone a side like Brighton. And my only concern there is I don't know if that says more about Brighton or West Ham. <laughs> I'll, I'll solve that one. <laughs> it's West Ham. <laughs> I'm starting to think the same. So, yeah, with that in mind, I, I just feel that this will genuinely be their toughest test. And I really feel Southampton get off the mark here. As I said, it's our pun school best bet. Southampton draw no bet at $2.15. Saints get up and running for me this weekend. Look forward to watching that one. The final fixture on the Saturday, the big one, feature piece of the weekend. Arsenal heading to Anfield to take on Liverpool. The only two sides with six points to start the season. So someone's dropping points this weekend. Who's it going to yep. be? It's going to be Arsenal. Oh, I love you, Serge. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you just look at the... Uh, I wasn't high on Arsenal from the start of the season. And, you know, they've had a very, very easy start to the campaign. I think they are going to struggle. And, you know, I don't think they were particularly convincing in either fixture. Um, minus, you know, a little bit of magic from Lacazette and Obama Yang. Yeah. We spoke about them being, you know, really p- pivotal for that Arsenal attack. And especially against the weaker teams. I mean, you know, you do expect them to shine. But, you know, Liverpool at home. Um, we, we spoke about the gulf between the, the top two and, and the chasing pack. And how not enough has been done to bridge it. And... You know, for me, I, I do expect Liverpool to run rampant. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are. I, I, I don't expect you to disagree with me. <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I, I definitely have a a little more air of caution about this one, I think. Just because I do see the frailties in that Liverpool backline at the moment with Alisson gone. His command of the box and and 
the confidence he gives the rest of the team is very clear to see, I think, right now. If there was ever any doubt before, you can see it crystal clear at the moment Mm -hmm. with Adrian there. That'll certainly play into Arsenal's hands. Like you said, the the likes of Aubameyang and Lacazette up front are more than capable of creating something out of nothing at any given moment, especially in that final third. I also think I need to give mention as well to Sabalos, who I thought was fantastic for Arsenal against Burnley. And if he can, again, build off of that and that Arsenal midfield can avoid being overrun, there might be a chance at something. But, look, to say Anfield is a fortress at the moment would be an absolute understatement. You know, they haven't they haven't lost there in the Premier League. I think it's now reached 40 Premier League fixtures. That's a pretty crazy start. Since they last lost at Anfield. More than a full season. More than a full season, yeah. Uh, Incredible. So, you know, the the work Klopp's done there to transform not only the players, but the fans to create what is, at the moment, a stadium that's completely on side with each other and arguably the most difficult stadium to, to go to right now. I don't know if Arsenal have the mental resolve to come away with something here. And I just don't believe that they have the defensive capability to do so. Because even though I did have them in my witness column last week for how comfortable they dealt with Newcastle, like you said, it's Newcastle. They were a far cry from that against Burnley. Burnley were absolutely in that fixture up until the 90th minute. The goal that they had just before halftime to equalise was well-deserved. They certainly deserved a goal. They certainly deserved to go in level. And, you know, they arguably created enough chances to potentially steal a point from that fixture as well. I mean, Arsenal only had a 1.2 XG. Burnley had a 1.17. And I think yes. I think that's very reflective of the game itself. So, for me, Anfield's certainly the deciding factor here. I think Liverpool, with a full week under their belt, get back to their best as well after what was a sluggish performance at Southampton. I'd say Liverpool, obviously, short odds. But I'd actually also say expect goals. I wouldn't, you know, looking at the over three goal market, I'd be expecting three or four goals here. You know, I'll be honest with you, Josh. Just in general, I'm going to find it really difficult to go against City or Liverpool in any fixture this season. I mean... Until proven otherwise. Until proven otherwise. Until there's... You know, there might be very special circumstances where City or Liverpool have only had, like, a three-day break on the back of a Champions League game and they've got a bunch of injuries and, like, Arsenal or Man United or Chelsea or Spurs are, are fresh for whatever reason. Um... You know, there could be very specific scenarios, but in general, like, I'm just going to be putting Liverpool and City in the winner's column every single week. I just think they're that much better than the rest. Yeah. So. I, I, look, I, I, as a fan, I'd be disappointed if we didn't come away with three points. Uh, as an analyst here, I firmly expect Liverpool to come away with the three points. With that in mind, is it worth asking you who you think is going to win Bournemouth Man City then? <laughs> Uh, I, I, I guess not. I guess I, I gave it away, didn't I? Uh, so, you know, interestingly, looking at the expected goals, again, City had the highest uh, XG last week yeah. and uh, Tottenham had the lowest, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. So, 
in theory, it should have been a drubbing. Um, and, you know, having watched the game, obviously, City yeah. were absolutely dominant in a way that I didn't even expect. At the point that Tottenham got the equalising goal, I think City had had 18 attempts on goal and yeah. Tottenham had had one, which they scored from. Um, it was just one of those days for Man City. And, uh, I mean, they really, really deserve the victory. They only have themselves to blame Um you know, the VAR, you, you know, even though we discussed the controversy, they did the right thing by the letter of the law. I just don't like the law. But, you know, City had so many opportunities, especially on 2-1 at the start of the second half, to yeah. take it to 3-1 and give themselves that little cushion. And I agree. That game should have been put away well before Lucas Mora came on and equalised. Uh, and I also agree that I, it was almost scary how good City were. That fixture, which is strange to say, given that they dropped points, but they were that dominant. They would, they reached a level of dominance against a top three side that I didn't think they were capable of. I mean, they carved open Tottenham much, much more easily than they did so West Ham. Yeah, exactly, and they actually recorded a higher expected goal return against Tottenham than they did against West Ham. Which I think, yeah, it tells the tale. They had a three point three three expected goal return against Tottenham. That's huge. That's to put it into perspective, a team like Ajax, who play in a very weak Eredivisie, they average at three point one expected goal return at home on a season against teams that half of us wouldn't even know. That's the type of performance that City just gave against the third best team in the Premier League just as a side note Josh if you don't mind me digressing a little bit uh, Raheem Sterling I've just been thinking about how quickly he's progressed as a player from season to season particularly in his time at Manchester City yeah and I'm going to make a big call now I don't know if you'll agree with me I was actually thinking about when was the last time I've ever seen a player improve this much this quickly and I, I came to the conclusion that I never have. I've never seen a player grow this much in such a short space of time where he's now being considered as, you know, if he has a success to be a potential Ballon d'Or winner, whereas just four or five seasons ago when he was, when Pellegrini was manager, you know, he was the worst player in the team um, despite being a, a big, yeah. big money signing at Liverpool. And I was thinking about other players that have improved in a similarly tight frame of time. Frank Lampard came to mind. I remember when uh, he was transferred from West Ham to yep. Chelsea for 10 or 11 million, which was a lot of money in those days. And a lot of eyebrows were raised. And obviously, you know, being a lead supporter, leads were in the hunt for him at the yep. time as well. And I was actually relieved that we missed out. And as it turned out, Lampard, you know, ended up becoming arguably the best midfielder in the country. I mean, he was always competing with Gerard, but he was definitely in the conversation yep. at least. And that was just a massive development. I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Josh? I think that he's firmly established himself as not just a big-time Premier League player, but as one of the best players in the world. And... All I can say, honestly, is his success comes down to Pep Guardiola. And I think Guardiola deserves 
a lot more praise than which is strange because he obviously gets praised for almost everything he does but he actually deserves a lot more praise for what he's done to Raheem Sterling's career and what he's done to him as a player not just instilling the confidence in him to, which to, was really important with Raheem because he was seeing a, uh, a psychiatrist, absolutely. psychiatrist at one point exactly right yeah and and you know it's not just that. I think he's also helped him reach a potential that he poten- he possibly didn't even know he, he could reach. And I think that a lot of people were unsure he could reach. You know, even at his time at Liverpool, as as raw as he was, there was never a belief he could be this good. And, you know, that's coming from a Liverpool fan. When we sold him, I knew we were selling a good thing. But never could I have envisioned him to be this good. The question mark now is: Can he do this for a full season, or will there be some sort of regression at some point in the coming weeks? And I don't imagine. When I say regression, I don't imagine it to be anything drastic. I just think, as of right now, he's playing at absolutely. He's absolutely playing at a level of uh, that's worthy of Ballon d'Or nomination, if nothing else. So, yeah, I. I yeah. I mean, what I've noticed in this uh, City squad is that they tend to like rotate the responsibility of being the star. So you might get yeah. um, Raheem Sterling playing out of his skin for five games and then uh, Aguero will take over and then um, De Bruyne. Um, they, they all sort, sort of seem to manage the load evenly. But, yeah. um, Speaking of De Bruyne, by the way, he he's come back brilliantly this season. It's great to see. Uh, I, I was a huge fan of his a couple of seasons back. Still am a huge fan of his as a neutral. I think he's such a fantastic player and it's so good to see he's able to reach those heights again after such a lengthy layoff. You know, there's always a concern that a player drops off and isn't quite the same again. But what I've seen from him in these first two weeks of this season is we're going to get a very similar Kevin De Bruyne to what we saw two seasons ago. Yeah, absolutely. De Bruyne is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it it is almost like a new signing for City. You know, he barely featured last season. And in a squad that is that good, you know, you can barely um, believe that it is true that there are two players in the squad that I think at the moment, anyway, are head and shoulders above everyone else. And those two players are Sterling and De Bruyne. Yeah. I don't think there's any other player in that squad... Um, on their level currently. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I do think City obviously bounced back in a big way here. Uh, (laughs) You know, you could almost say that Bournemouth are playing them at the wrong time after that debacle, VAR debacle. So Bad timing. Yeah, things could get ugly for Eddie Howe's side, but at the same time... Like you said, almost irrespective of who they're playing right now, it's you, you lock in City and Liverpool for a win most weeks until until reason other uh, suggests otherwise. Oh, like, just just on that point, I you know I just just thinking to myself, um, you know, this might be a, a good opportunity for um, for listeners to the podcast to give us some feedback as well. I'd really love to know if um, you guys have any ideas on. A player that has uh, sort of shot to prominence or improved in the shortest period of time possible. Is there someone in, in your memories that 
um, has improved and grown faster than Sterling or faster than Lampard, as we've said. You know, I think this is a pretty interesting topic to discuss. Yeah, I'll definitely give it some thought Yeah. Uh, over the next couple of days. And I would like to bring it up next week as well because, yeah, like you said, it, it is scary how how quickly he's developed into a complete superstar. And you see so many players. Like I think it's more common to go the other way. Oh, yeah, it's to, absolutely. To, to yeah. appear to be a superstar <laughs> at the age of 17 and 18 and, and 19. And then three or four years later, you're just not the same player for, for whatever reason. So it, it's great to see. Uh, I mean, you know, if you had asked me in the Pellegrini era what should City do with the squad, I would have said yep. the first thing they need to do is get rid of Sterling. He's yep. dead wood. He's not good enough. Yeah, I completely um, agree with you. And I, I think, it, you know, it's really hard to disagree with that. I mean, unless you're Guardiola and you can see the talent. But for me, just based on his performances and what we're seeing of him on the pitch, he looked like a, uh, a square peg going into a round hole. He just didn't fit. Every time he got the ball, he lost possession. Yeah. He was the most frustrating player to watch. So With that, though, uh, we won't spend too much more talking about Sterling. But yeah. I think one thing that'll go a long way to dictating just how good he is will be at next summer's Euros with England. Yes. Because I thought he was very bad for them at the World Cup. Very wasteful. Absolutely. And, um, you know, that raises the question, uh, you know, the same sort of argument people make about Messi at Barcelona. Yeah, it's easy to to be such a big star when you're playing around so many great players, but can you do it when you're around a less talented bunch? And I think that's going to be the same conversation around Sterling. And yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see that too. Yeah, that will be. Couple fixtures left. Spurs, Newcastle. I mean, is it even worth asking you who you think's (laughs) going to win that one? Uh, Newcastle, Josh. I'm picking up. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Tottenham, obviously. Uh, That could, yeah, that could be another game of pick your scoreline based on what we've seen so far this season. I think Spurs will really want to come out and make a statement. I think Pochettino won't be under any disillusion as to how fortunate they were to get a point in that game. Back home, they'll certainly want to put in a big performance and doing so against Newcastle isn't the most difficult task right now. So for me, Spurs probably by three, four. I'm going to be generous to Newcastle and say two. Okay. I'm, I'm tipping uh, 4-2. Okay. I don't know where the goals are going to come from. I, that's, yeah, I was going to, <laughs> the most alarming thing there is the two next to Newcastle. An own goal and a penalty, maybe. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, and then Wolves-Burnley finishing things off at the Molyneux. Wolves, two points, two draws to start the season. Tough couple fixtures. This one probably the most winnable, I think, of the three so far for them. They'd be expecting the win. I think 185 is a terrific price for them as well here against a Burnley side who overachieved in that win against Southampton. Uh, We're much better, I think, against Arsenal. But probably will fall short again here. Uh, One of the tougher venues in the Premier League. Yeah, I'm with you, Josh. I'm all over Wolves on this one. I think they had two really tough fixtures to, to start the season. Um, you know, obviously away at Leicester and then Man United. Uh, I, I imagine that they will be expecting to get the three points here and more than capable of doing it against Burnley, despite their um, their good form so far. Yeah, I, I, I still think Wolves terrific value there. 
definitely lock them in for me. And that'll be a big match day three wrapped up. And there'll be plenty to get through for next week. So with that though, before we go, EPL jersey giveaway. No one won it again. <laughs> a few people did get Raheem Sterling first goal scorer correct. So they get another point to their name. There's now, I think, five people off the top of my head sitting on two points. Did anyone other than you get the scoreline? No. They don't listen to me, Serge. <laughs> they don't listen to me. Big Three mistake. times this season now. I've given you guys half the, half the work. Although I should add that if the uh, VAR was functioning correctly, I would have won. That's mostly. true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it did function correctly, just for the record. But <laughs> yes. Uh, so with that, this week's fixture will be Liverpool-Arsenal. At Anfield. Again, just comment with the first goal scorer correct scoreline. If you're right, you win the jersey of your choice. If you get either the first goal scorer or scoreline right, you will get a point and the first person to reach four points will also win the jersey of their choice. Over to you, Serge. You know what to do. First goal scorer scoreline. All right, well... I'm feeling confident after my great form last week, if only for that uh, silly VAR decision. I'm going to go with Liverpool 5 0. Jeez. <laughs> You're getting me excited over here, Judge. And uh, I'm going, I'm, I'm not going to be uh, outlandish with my first goal scorer this week. I'm going to go with Mane. Yeah, that's that's a sensible option. Uh, probably more sensible than... Did you go Alderweireld last week? I did. Okay, I did. yeah. This yeah. this one probably makes a bit more I, sense. I have to pay some respect to that screamer that he scored. That oh, was uh, delicious. That was fantastic. He's in some form this, this calendar year as well. The top scorer in the Premier League in 2019. So, shows no sign of slowing either. Slowing up, sorry. Um, for me, geez, pressure on me here. I've gotten every single one right. <laughs> I've at least gotten half of every single one right. I'm going to go with Liverpool 3-1. I do think both sides get on the score sheet. I think Liverpool open the scoring and I'm going to go with Roberto Firmino to do so just because I think he's going to cause that centre-back pairing absolute headaches. So 3-1 Firmino for me. 5-0 Mane for Serge. I actually hope you're right, Serge. On both counts, really. I don't know, is it just... I, I don't know the stats here, but I seem to remember a lot of games where Liverpool absolutely drubbed Arsenal. Yeah, 5-1, 5-1, 4-1 off the top of my head. I think three so of the last four it's, visits. It's so, hardly unheard of. No, it's not unheard of at yeah. all. Yeah. the only, To be honest, the only part I probably disagree with the most there is the fact we'll keep a clean sheet. <laughs> but yes, as always, guys, do comment with your first goal scorer and correct scoreline for Liverpool versus Arsenal. And if you're correct, you'll win the jersey of your choice. But for now, Serge, that'll do us, I think, for this week. Plenty to get through and plenty to look forward to. Can't wait, Josh. See you next week. See you next week, guys.